Welcome back to The Chosen Life. I'm your host, The Chosen Lawyer. And today we have a very special guest. We forayed into a new genre altogether. We're in rock music. Uh, the band Little Barry and the lead singer and guitarist, Barry Cadigan. Barry, welcome to The Chosen Life. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. And uh, you're over in the UK. We're over in Canada, based out of uh, Toronto, Ontario, Canada, actually. Where are you in the UK currently? Uh, I'm in London. Yeah. Right in London. Perfect. Yeah. Born and raised? No, no. I grew up in uh, Nottingham in the Midlands, actually. And I moved to London, you know, to sort of pursue music more and, and stuff. So, yeah, but I've lived in London a long time. But much more of my adult life in London. Now, you've done quite a bit of traveling throughout the world, I know, with Little Barry. Have you ever made it to Canada? Yeah, we've played a few times. Yeah, we played uh, we've played Toronto, Montreal, and Vancouver. We've been to Canada as Little Barry, maybe at least twice, I think, possibly three times over the years. Now, the band Little Barry is based on my understanding on a nickname that you were given in your younger years. Yeah, it was my friend's dad who called it me once, and it just sort of stuck. And then a few people started saying it, and then when I was just looking for a name to do something under, I just did that, you know, and it sort of stayed really. We have a city here actually in Ontario, Barrie, and spelled the same way as, as you spell your name, B-A-R-R-I-E. Oh, really? Because I've not that I've not met that many Barrys with the name spelled like the way mine is. I think people think I've changed it as a stage name to make it look more interesting or something but that's that's the way it's spelled that's the name i was given by my parents you know? that's what it says in the citizenship well next time you're traveling in ontario we have a city up north called barry ontario spelled the same way they have quite a bit of music festivals as part of in, in oh, tours right. and stuff so maybe you'll make it out there and you'd be a king in barry trust me <laughs> yeah i'll have to get a gig there why not now speaking of kings before we step into rock music i gotta ask you because again being based in canada a lot of the talk right now over the past few weeks of course passing of Queen Elizabeth and the uh, coronation of King Charles. Uh, how is the mood right now in the UK? Can you describe to us a little bit as far as the feeling of uh, the passing of the Queen and how things are going with King Charles? Um, I think I think it's a very mixed group of feelings really amongst the population. I don't think I don't think you've got you know a majority of people feeling one way or another about it really. To some people that you know the royal family means a great deal and to others it just simply doesn't you know so there's lots of different feelings around the passing of the queen and charles becoming king you know for various reasons i think i think there was a lot of debate i know at least in canada because you know we used to be part of your empire and people here still talk about uh the monarchy all the time and thinking, would Charles become king? Would he pass it over? But my feeling was that he, as long as there's life in his body, he was going to be king. That was never going to change. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know, you know, I don't pay a huge amount of attention to the royal family personally, you know. Um, but, you know, everyone has their own opinion on it. Well, but, we'll yeah, leave, the, you know, leave the monarchy to be, yeah. to be, and we will jump into rock music then. So, sorry, just because based out of the UK, I got to ask you. And, of course, as we were chatting before we started, you have to be drinking tea. So, uh... Oh, yeah. It was, um, yeah, it's peppermint tea. But, um, but yeah, the, the last word on the monarchy thing is, yes. yeah, for some people, they seem to, you know, hold the royal family in quite high regard. But for other people, there's a lot of people struggling in this country. There's a lot of people suffering because they're basically living in poverty. 
and you know that makes people feel sometimes quite different about it all really in, in many ways it's very I mean. extinct as far as this whole idea of it but uh there's a novelty of it that people still clamor to it for whatever reason i don't know i think in our lifetime it's still going to continue i i think eventually it's gonna I'm not gonna say disband mm -hmm. But I think eventually people will be done with it just because it, it's so archaic. But on the other hand, like you said, there's enough people that do love it that uh, it's here. Yeah, I think it's changing, but we'll see. We'll see what happens. You know. Now, back to one of my favorite subjects, your favorite subjects, rock and roll music, uh -huh. Little Barry. Now, your first album released uh, several years back. Now, uh, back in 05, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. That was your debut album. Uh-huh. And at what point, uh, Barry, would you say that you knew in your heart of hearts, I was always curious as far as when somebody forms a band, makes a living out of it. At what point did the light bulb go on over your head and you said to yourself, this is what I'm going to do for a living. This was what I was born to do. Did you know that always? Um, well, long before that, really, I liked the idea as soon as not long after getting my first guitar when I was a teenager, I, I thought this is what I want to do. But I didn't have any idea how to do it or anything. It's just what I was most interested in. I just thought I want to do this because I was obsessed. I was fascinated with music and fascinated with guitars and guitar culture, I guess. So, so from an early age, I, I was, I got so into music that I just thought this is what I want to do. I wasn't really interested in it, doing anything else. So now the history of little Barry, six studio albums, uh, last one released a couple of years ago, back in 2020, but let's talk about the formation of the band and how you, the original incarnation of little Barry came to be. Well, originally, just a little bit before Little Barry, I was playing with some friends in Nottingham in a band called Polska. And, and the other three guys that I played with are now and still in a band called The Sound Carriers. And they were all friends of mine, really good friends of mine. But I fancied doing something a bit different. And I wanted to do something a bit more sort of... Because the band before, basically, was... We were a mixture of kind of, yeah, sort of groove-based music, but a little bit folkier slightly jazzy in a way, but not in a bad way. And, um, but I wanted to do something that had a bit more rock and roll in it, but kept some of that sort of soulful element and stuff. And um, so I decided that I wanted to have a change. And I originally Little Barry was going to be a solo project and I made some demos on my own. I got a friend of mine to help play drums and I made a three track demo. And um, a friend of mine gave the demo to someone who ran a small label in London. And they wanted to release two of the tracks as a seven inch single. So that's how the first release music came about. And then around that time, I met Wayne, who was the first drummer in the band. And then me and him started playing together and working on tunes. And we moved to London. Um, and that's where we met Lewis, the bass player. And then we had a band, like a functioning band. But yeah, it started out as a solo project and became a band as I met people along the way. And now musical influential wise, it's uh, it says on your site, it's interesting. I, I think of it as like, if Cream and Jimi Hendrix had a baby, it would be Little Barry. So uh, these were, were those your biggest <laughs> musical influences growing up? Um, they were influences. They were things that had a massive influence on me. Yeah, but I think people just say that a lot because you're a trio as well though, really. I mean, yeah, you know, if you're a trio and there's a bit of blues in it, then people are just going to say that, you know. But yeah, I love both those bands. But the big influence for me starting to want to learn to play was the Stone Roses. 
it's mainly my sister's record collection, but it was John Squire was the reason I wanted to learn. And then shortly after that, you know, I discovered other guitar players like Johnny Marr and Jay Maskis from Dinosaur Jr. I liked a lot. And uh, uh, Ray Hansen from The Hypnotics was a, a big influence because it was those guys who sort of showed us the window. And some of the Seattle bands like Mudhoney, I liked as well. You know, because I probably heard Mudhoney before I heard, I don't know, The Stooges or something, you know. Because you, you get into music that's going on at the time and then you work your way backwards to maybe what other groups are into. So I got to ask you, though, uh, it, be interested in Jimi Hendrix. Uh, did you play any Doors albums when you were younger? Did Jim Morrison well, have an effect on you at all? One of my mates was a massive Doors fan. And I've got to admit, I didn't really get it at the time. But I've learned to appreciate and got into it a lot more when I was older. But, you know, Jimi Hendrix was my dad was a big Hendrix fan. He had the Cream Records as well. So when I was getting into guitar and then I was getting interested in more bluesy things, obviously, that was a natural way to go because a lot of bands around the time I was learning to play guitar. Yeah, so with the Stone Roses, there was obviously a Jimi Hendrix influence. It took me a while to get into the doors, to be honest. It took me a lot longer to get my head around it, but I love it now. But yeah, I was slow to it. When I, was, when I first heard the doors, when I was like 14, 15, I wasn't quite ready for it maybe. I gotta tell you, like being on this side of the waters, uh, at the time, you know, when I was a teenager, Oasis was ruling the airwaves. And mm. uh, I had a, uh, like, you know, when you were, uh, those uh, 10 CDs for a penny type of, uh, you know, collection clubs. Anyway, so, and then they send you one every month. If you don't like it, you send it back. They sent me a CD yeah. called The Stone Roses Second Coming. Had never yeah. heard of The Stone Roses in my life. Put it on. Not bad. Okay. I did a little bit of research on them because I've never heard of them before. And I love music. And it's funny because they just, you know, I, I know the, the power they have in the UK and Canada, North America, we were not hearing them as much. I bought their first solo album, their, sorry, their self-titled album, and it just blew me away. Like I said, these guys are huge. Wow. And I, could, I couldn't stop listening to it over and over again. And uh, it's almost like they had the lottery ticket and they flushed it down a toilet. Like this is a band. They could have been as big as the Beatles if they wanted to be, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, I don't exactly know what went on there really I think there was a few it seems like there was a few things going on at the same time some legal issues I think as well with contracts and management and whatever so yeah just the beautiful, beautiful 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 music Ian Brown you know still recording his stuff uh uh still going strong and it's nice to see we get it a little bit over here but it's amazing like you know being in Canada North America we see so much of our influence from the UK whether it's television shows movies and music especially well we well, we get that from you know, we get that from your side of the pond as well. You know, there's a, maybe there's a sort of mutual fascination with either side of the pond because it's different to what, you know, we're more familiar with. And I guess with, especially the US, you know, because rock and roll came from there, the blues came from there, jazz and, and whatever, there's, there's always been a thing of the UK looking because it's the roots of rock and roll and what came before it, you know, so it, so that's probably why a lot of British bands were fascinated to go to America in the 1960s, even all the way up till now and into the future, you know, because there's so much music history there. Well, I bring up the doors because I was curious as far as every artist and how they produce their arts of work, whether it's uh, music, paintings, etc. The doors were able to produce six quality, unbelievable albums in five years, which is unheard of in this day and age. Sometimes now you see bands take four years sometimes or more. You guys are about two to four years, give or take. What is the process like for Little Barry from the debut album till now? 
as far as preparing an album? Is it the same process every time or is it different? Can you walk us through it a little bit? Yeah, it's been pretty different, sort of depending on circumstances, really. Like the first album we made, you know, um, some of us were still, you know, we still had jobs, you know, to pay the pay the rent and stuff. We, you know, we did the first album with Edwin Collins at his studio. He produced it. He basically helped us out massively and helped us make our first album when we had no money. He used to have a day off where he normally didn't go into his studio because he had an amazing studio in North London. And um, Wednesday was normally his day off, but we were going in on Wednesdays and he would come in and he recorded our album for us, you know, and produced it. So that was... That was that was mind blowing for us because we love the sound of his records and really liked Edwin and he had this amazing studio with a lot of really cool equipment. He didn't do things by the book, you know, and that's what we liked about him and his engineer Seb. So we used to go in on Wednesday afternoons and make that record. You know, it took us a while to do it, but then you know we had to find a way to put it out. So yeah, some each album we made has been quite a different scenario. Sometimes it's the amount of support you've got around you, what you know, what facilities you've got, what you've got at your disposal. You know, some records are made on a very tight budget and really tight time frame. Other times we've had a little bit longer to do things. Other times records take longer, not just because you don't want to get them done. It's just the, the availability of where you want to work or working around your other commitments, you know. So sometimes actually days recording can be quite a short amount of days, but getting it from start to finish can be a long process. When you look at how your last album, Quartermass 7, was done versus, let's say, your debut album, uh, how night and day different were those two albums, for example? Uh, Quartermass album was done in a lot less days. I mean, it's shorter. It was only seven tracks, but there was a lot less days recording on that. You know, um, But that was, a, that was a departure for us because it was the first time we were working with drummer and producer Malcolm Cato, and he's got his own studio. So he was playing drums and producing the record. Um, so that was quite a different environment, but you know we'd been through quite a lot before then. I don't know if you know this story about the band, but we lost our drummer who passed away, Virgil passed away. And then for a while, we didn't know how we felt about doing anything. So when we finally felt like doing music again, we thought we'll try working on some with Malcolm as maybe a side project and see how it goes. And maybe we'll record two tracks we like, but we came out with more material than we initially thought we would. So it became an album, but that was a really enjoyable process. The first album spent longer, maybe trying more stuff out, and we had more songs to try out and stuff. Um, you know, so the, the processes were quite different. I guess we've learned to work a bit quicker as well over time, maybe. I kind of noticed that. I, in my mind, it's always the debut album is the one you're working on for, I'm not going to say all your life, but it's the one that put the heart and soul into. And then when that takes, I know for a lot of bands, they got to get the next one out pretty soon. Like they can't take that same amount of time. It feels like the pressure is there. From the, from the record company, right? Well, that's the interesting thing as well. It's like, well, sometimes though, your first album, you haven't necessarily got a lot of studio time at your disposal because you're watching money. But I guess all your lifetime has gone into, or quite a lot of your lifetime has gone into the music that, that creates your first record. So when you've made your first record, even if you've written the songs in the last two years, you, it's maybe a combination of things that you've absorbed for many years. When you come to your second album, so you release your first album, you go out and tour it, and then labels like okay we need another album now but now you're starting from scratch unless you've got a bunch of material left over that you want to use you know so that it can second albums the environment could be quite different you know maybe because we were in a de very different situation with a record label and stuff when we made our second album compared to the first when we made the album with edwin the first time we didn't have a record deal we got a deal after we'd finished it 
whereas you know we were involved with a record company when we were making our second now when you look at your uh your band's history is there a particular album particular song or songs that you can say you know th these are my personal favorites these are my babies or are each one just part of the collection in your head yeah there's definitely some that i mean some I don't know how other people who write music feel, but for me, some songs stand the test of time better than others. Sometimes you do things, you look back and you're like, yeah, I was into it at the time, but I'm not so into that now, you know, but that's all right. But yeah, there's, I guess some songs feel like they stand the test of time more than others. Um, yeah. um, I, I know it, it sounds a bit obvious really, but probably the last album we did is probably my favorite. Or the album before that we did, Def Express, they were my two favorites really. Um, and and I was gonna and I was, and you brought up Edwin and I was gonna you're reading my mind because I have a couple of items here that I listed off, and man he got a lot of play and he's still loved over here and just seems like a really cool cat. Uh, how did you actually get introduced to him originally and how many of the albums did you work with Edwin on? Uh, okay, so I first met Edwin because I was working in a, a shop selling vintage guitars in London. And uh, I got to be friends with a guy called Andy Hackett, who ran a, an infamous music shop called Angel Music that sold secondhand guitars. And Andy played guitar in Edwin's band. So it was Andy who introduced us to Edwin. Um, when they were doing a gig in London, I went down and uh, met Edwin. And I gave Edwin one of our early singles that we'd made. And uh, the message got back to us that he liked the single. And I said, oh, we're looking to record a couple of tracks for a new single would you consider recording as your studio? And he said, yeah. And we booked a couple of days and we went down and we had a really good time. We actually recorded three songs instead of two. And Edwin said, would you like to carry on and do an album? We were like, yeah, we'd love to, but we don't have the money. And he, and him and his wife just said, well, why don't we just make the record and we worry about it later? So that was a, you know, so Edwin gave us the, the biggest sort of, you know, helping and leg up you could ask for really because he helped us make a record in this brilliant studio with loads of cool equipment, you know, recording equipment, guitars, you know, amplifiers. He had a bunch of vintage microphones, you know, really cool stuff that helped get the sound that we were looking for at the time. So we were very, very fortunate. Without Edwin, it wouldn't have been as easy for us, I don't think at all. And, and how many of the albums was Edwin involved with, with you? Uh, we did three. We did the first yeah. one, and then we did the third one, King of the Waves, and the fourth one, Shadow. We did all of those with Edwin. And then in the meantime, I was starting to do some sessions at Edwin's studio, for, sometimes for other artists, but I started playing on a few of Edwin's records. And I've, I've been in Edwin's band at different times as well, on tour, so which has been a lot of fun. So. You still keep in touch with him? Yeah, I do. He's, he's moved to Scotland. He used to live oh. in London, so he's relocated his studio to the Scottish Highlands, so it's quite far away now, so I don't get to see him as often. But yeah, we're still in touch. Yeah, I'd love to see him because of the only thing I'll say about the pandemic, because of the pandemic, I've not seen him for a while, but I'd love to see him. Any idea why he moved over there? Uh, well, he already had his grandfather's old house there. And um, and I think it's a combination of, you know, Edwin suffered a stroke as well. No, I was not aware of Yeah, uh, um, he, and he was, he was really sick. It took him a long time to try and get back to you know, being able to do certain things again because it, it was it was pretty heavy what happened to him, you know. So he had to undergo a lot of physio and sort of rehabilitation to try and get some kind of quality of life back. So, but he's still, you know, he's not able to do some of the things he used to be able to, but he's still making records. He's still singing. 
so I think I think the combination of all of that, I think maybe a change was in order, and and uh, yeah, he moved up to Scotland where he already had his I think it's his grandfather's old house, and he relocated the studio up there in Helmsdale. It's very I imagine it's a more chill life over there versus being in London. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think he still misses London. He comes down when he can. Now, speaking of a chill life or not chill life, I, w- I wanted to talk to you about touring. And one of the items I did read about is that you did tour with the Stone Roses at uh, one point for a limited time. I supported, well, we supported the Stone Roses in Paris. And I well, I was playing with Primal Scream at the time as well. And Primal Scream did two shows open for the Stone Roses. So I did open for them three times, but with different two different bands, yeah. Any uh, Stone Roses stories from touring or? Uh, from- well, they were just really nice to us, you know, because... When we when we played them as a little Barry, they were doing a gig at the Sigal in Paris, which is a, a smallish theatre. It's a warm up for one of their biggest shows, and uh, we got one of the supports one night. I think they did two nights there, and we got support for one of the nights. And uh, you know, I never thought I'd ever be opening for the Stone Roses because they were the reason that you know I was playing anyway. But I think it was because of Manny. You know, I played with Manny, who who was also in Primal Scream after the Stone Roses split first time. Uh, but yeah, they were really nice to us, and it was uh, it was a great experience. You know, they looked after us, and uh, their crew were really cool. So yeah, it was an amazing moment. It was about ten years ago, I think we did that. What What's it like the atmosphere? Because uh, I I never seen them live. They did one North American date. I remember about three years back, four years back. They were supposed to play Madison Square Garden in New York City, and. My timing did not allow at the end. Uh, being a real estate lawyer, I was not able to get there at the uh, end of the month, beginning of the month. So I could not do the traveling over and I've always wanted to see them live. What is the atmosphere like for the crowd yeah, to be in a live it, Stone Roses concert? It was amazing. I mean, you know, when the, I never saw them the first time around, but so I can only talk about the gigs when they reformed. But the first time I saw them was when we, when I played with Primal Scream and we opened for them at, they did three shows in Heaton Park, this big park in Manchester. And it was something like 55,000 people each night. And, um, and when they went on, literally, people weren't just singing the words, people were singing the guitar riffs and stuff like that, you know. Yeah, it was, it was electric atmosphere, it was incredible. But the gig in Seagal, because it was a small club, I guess might have felt a bit more like what it was like to see them when they were playing smaller venues at one point. But yeah, it was incredible. Was, I wish uh, I wish more of the world could have seen them. And uh, it yeah. just, you know, and, and for anybody who hasn't uh, heard their uh, albums before, I would say grab the self-titled Stone Roses. If you ever thought you'd like rock music, uh, that's definitely a good starter one. And I'm glad that it's interesting that that's like one of my favorite bands of all time. And turns out that was your biggest musical influence. So pretty neat. Yeah, it was it was a massive record for not just me, but a lot of my friends at the time. And that, and through that record and there was other bands around at the time, like the Happy Mondays. Um, also Primal Scream, um, those records, that that era was a sort of, yeah, I don't know, I guess maybe everyone who's that like 15 years old or 14 years old has bands like that that have that impression on them. But it was a massive cultural thing. Just, just that record was everywhere. I remember when it came out, you just hear it everywhere. People told me in the UK that that was literally like the feeling of the Beatles at the time when they had come out. Like they had such a big following that they were not... Uh, for, for that time, I think it was late 80s, probably, maybe early 90s. Yeah, 80, 89, the record yeah. came out. Yeah it, yeah, it did feel like a really positive time. I don't know if that's just because I was a teenager and, you know, I was really getting into music and I was getting to the point of leaving secondary school and maybe going to college or something. But it just felt like a positive time. A lot of 
musical discovery and uh, you know, good hot summer and yeah, it's just a good atmosphere, I think. Now, uh, inside the Stone Roses, you've you've toured the world, you've played with so many bands. Uh, ones that step stand out in your mind as far as bands, singers that you played with, you toured with that uh, were your faves? Then I've been lucky to work with a lot of good people, really. So it's hard to pick out any particular band, but you know, I had a good time. I had an amazing time playing with the Primal Scream. Good, you know, I've also worked with, yeah, Edwin. I've worked in the studio with people like Paul Weller. It's been really good. Um, I've been I've been very lucky. I, I guess certain gigs stick in your mind, like playing the Royal Albert Hall with Matt Johnson. With the, the that was a really that was an incredible gig. I'll never forget. Sometimes you get those nights where um, I don't know. There's something about it. I think. I've said this before in interviews where sometimes you've got your head down and you're playing and you're sort of concentrating on the music and you get lost in the music. So you, you don't really fully take a moment to realize where you are and what's going on. But occasionally you do get those moments in a gig where you have to say to yourself, man, you need to remember this because something really special is happening here. And I remember that gig with Matt at the Albert Hall. That definitely felt like that. And uh, yeah, I've been lucky to have a few moments. I remember doing a gig in, I think it was in Sao Paulo with Primal Scream where I don't know the roof went off. It was just really exciting, you know. We've had a few gigs like that with our own band. I mean, going to we went to Japan not long after the tsunami, the Fukushima disaster, and not many bands have been over for a while. And we played a small club in Osaka, and you know, the spirit in the audience. I think people have been through so much in Japan and people just wanted to let their hair down and have a good time. That was quite moving. You know, the the you could feel this the spirit and I don't know how to put it into words really, but it was, yeah, it was powerful and it was, it was, it was kind of emotional really. And you could see that in people's faces as well. You know, people haven't been able to go out much or go to gigs and it's been a horrific time for them as a country. And to go out and play then and talk to people about it was, was incredible really. Barry, when you have a choice, like, do you, are you more of a guy that likes to play in the clubs, small and intimate, or do you like the big uh, stadiums, festivals or both? I like to be able to do, I'm lucky that I've been able to see either side of it. And the big gigs are incredible to say you've done them. I do think you can have more of an interaction with the audience when it's a smaller venue. And there's something that I really love about that. But to, to experience the big shows has been amazing. Like doing the Nebworth shows recently with Liam and stuff has been incredible. And that, but there's something about playing indoors for me, you know, because when it's contained, it's in a room, there's a ceiling, there's walls. It's different, the sound. You, you hear your own sound in a different way and you hear the audience in a different way and there's something it feels more intense to me like that rather than when it's outdoors well and i would I like tell people i would tell people that want to get intimate with you i really like your youtube channel and the idea behind it so you have the official little berry on youtube and it's you essentially uh doing intimately acoustically your guitar riffs right yeah, or sometimes I'm just working on things I've just written, or sometimes I make things up on the spot, you know, or a new idea, or I'll play somebody else's song. I just started doing it during lockdown because there was no gigs, and I just started doing it for something to do. And then people got interested in it. And and then, uh, you know, we started posting them up on YouTube after, because I started doing them on Instagram and then to YouTube. And we started posting them up on there. And yeah, I've had quite a lot of good feedback from it, really. It it's, just it's... started out as a fun thing, you know. I, I felt very close to you listening to it and I just found it very, very interesting and a lover of music just to see that. And I would say for anybody 
that loves guitar, it, you you really show the hands-on part of it, and that's pretty neat. Oh, thanks. I mean, it's it's pretty crude, you know. I just do it in this room, and yeah. it's not sophisticated. It's just recorded on a phone, and just sort of quick things, really. But it's nice because it's a way to explore maybe things you don't always do in your own records as well. Just play things you like, you know, or a style that you like, or a style you're trying to learn. You know, I wouldn't say the things I put up are particularly polished or refined. They're just little clips, you know. There's a lot of mistakes in there and stuff, really. But they're just sort of, yeah, short moments of things, really. But, yeah, it's fun to do. I think the raw stuff is the most fun, personally. I like to see it at that end of it. Yeah, it's, me it's, too. Because it's, it's real. Yeah, and, me too. And speaking of real, you know, you were, you were discussing about Virgil, and it made me think of the Foo Fighters now that they're going to be going on without their drummer, Taylor Hawkins, who had passed away. And, you know... Over the course of my life, like, for example, I was a big uh, Stone Temple Pilots fan. And when Scott Weiland passed away, you know, that shook me. That was my, you know, one of my favorite singers. I had seen him live so many times. I had just seen him live maybe two months before that. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, it's gone the next day, you know? And mm -hmm. uh, it's like, I couldn't even listen to rock music for a while. It just, it really, like, it, it hurt me. Like, it's like, I, I connected to that music. And I've seen bands that are able to continue on, and some bands just could not, you know? And I know it's painful, but if you could walk us through a little bit what the atmosphere like was like after Virgil passed and how you continued on. Well, I mean, because it was completely unexpected, it it was just a it was just a massive hammer blow. It was the day before our UK tour. We'd made a new album, about to go on tour, and he died the day before. So tour was out the window. And we were just stunned, really. You know, we were just like for a while we didn't know how we felt about any of it. And we didn't know if we wanted to carry on the band or not. I mean, over time, I think me and Lewis thought we have to try and do something, but we didn't really know what. And that's what led us to hook up with Malcolm, you know, because we'd met Malcolm many years ago. But but at, at the time, you know, I, I don't think either of us had lost anyone that close to us before. It was our age as well and stuff, you know, who was such a close friend. It was It was incredibly... I mean, the, the thing people th we first think of is obviously, you know, Virgil, Virgil's father and stuff, you know, and he had family and you can't imagine how that must be for family. But it was, um, you know, speaking about ourselves, it was just, it was incredibly hard. Um, and I guess you never get over it, but you just try and find a way to move forward, you know, what, sort of thing. Was there a little way as far as... Uh dedications or a way to continue his legacy memory that you guys did after uh, he had passed? Well, we, we just thought everything we'd done with him had been released. So there wasn't anything left to release. And we just needed time just to get our heads together. You know, we, we just felt like we have to carry on somehow and do something. And people people said to us, you know, Virgil wouldn't have wanted us to stop. Like, I wouldn't want my friends to stop playing music if I wasn't here anymore. So, yeah, we just had to try and do something because it felt like we had to do something, but we didn't know how. Sometimes you feel guilty for trying to carry on. You know, you think, is this the wrong thing to do? Because you sometimes think, out of respect, you just call it a day and try and do something else. But, but me and Lewis have been playing together for 20 years. You know, we thought, we can't just stop, you know, because if I was going to play with someone on bass in a band, I would want it to be Lewis. So I just thought, this is crazy. But we didn't really know where to start, but we thought with Malcolm, it would be like a separate project. 
which it is in a way. And that would be a way to test the water. But we didn't, I mean, we didn't release anything for three years. We didn't start, we didn't start working with trying to play with Malcolm for at least getting on for a year after Virgil died, you know. I was I was busy, I did a couple of session jobs and then started working with Matt Johnson with the other. So maybe that was a welcome distraction. It got me into playing again, mm-hmm. but not um not as little Barry, and maybe that break helped. You know, me and Lewis got together with Tony Coote, who plays drums when we play as Little Barry now, and our friend Joe Hollick from Bad Wolf People. And we did a tribute to Danny Kerwin from Fleetwood Mac playing old early Fleetwood Mac tunes from the Peter Green era. Um, and that was the first time me and Lewis had gone on stage since Virgil died. And that was over a year after he died. So it took us a while to, to get on stage again. But it, it, it felt, eventually it got to the point where we felt like we had to. Yeah. And this is, and it's the one studio album that's come out since Virgil's passing. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so, but... so for for the the hit uh, single that came from the Better Call Saul theme uh, show, uh, yeah. that that was actually recorded with Virgil, correct? It was, yeah. I mean, the the full song was written after I'd written the theme for the series, because the original brief was they wanted a twenty second guitar theme. Uh, for the start of the show and it was only later on when they chose our theme for the show that they asked if we were considering turning it into a full-length song and if we were they would put it on a soundtrack for the first season so the full song came later that you've just completely blown my mind because I'd always always pictured it that you had recorded this song this was a great song and they had listened to it on the radio or somebody was in the UK and said that's our song they called you up so it did not go down like that at all, actually. No, well, the music director was based in LA for the series, Thomas Golubich. And Thomas liked a song of ours on our second album called Why Don't You Do It? And he liked that kind of guitar sound, guitar style. He said, would you consider maybe writing something a bit in this vein that we can cut dead on 20 seconds for the beginning of each episode? And uh, I was like, yeah, sure. And gave him a lot of different versions of similar-esque things, you know, that were all 20 seconds long. But it was only later someone approached us again, it might have been Thomas said, look, they want to do a soundtrack album of the first season. If you turn it into a song, would you like to put it on the album? Like, yeah, we'd love to. And there's no rush, you know, you've got a couple of months. I was like, cool. And after about six weeks, we got an email said, have you got that song yet? And we were like, "Uh, no. (laughs) And so we had to write it really quickly and record it. So we we had like to do it in like a couple of weeks or something. So I wrote the song in like a week and then we recorded it. you know, so it was quite a tight deadline, a bit like writing the themes were a tight deadline as well. But yeah, it came good. The original 22nd, how long do you think that took to prepare and how many different ones did you give them at the time? Uh, well, I spoke to Thomas on like a Thursday afternoon, Thursday evening. It would have been an afternoon, his time. And uh, he said, uh, could you give us some variations? So this was Thursday. So when do you need them by? And he went, oh, Monday. And I just went, yeah. And then after I ended the call, I was like, shit, Monday, you know, like, Sorry, swearing. I was like, oh no, Monday. So I had to sort of cancel plans, other plans for the weekend. And I called up Virgil and said, can you, can we go in the studio and record these on Monday? I've got to write. And he, he asked for 17 different options. So I, I wrote 17 20 second themes and we went in the studio and recorded them on the Monday. And because they were really short, we just mixed them all and sent them off on a Monday night. Virgil sent them off. And then after about a week, we didn't hear anything. And after a week, Thomas came back and said, they're great. Can you give me 12 more? And I was like, yeah, sure. 
And I said, when do you need them by? It was like Monday. So same thing, next weekend. Did another 12. We record them on the Monday, send them off. And it was then we found out that other writers were pitching for it as well. So they weren't just, it wasn't a dead cert that we were going to get picked for the theme. And then we found out, yeah, several weeks later that they'd chosen one of ours. And yeah, we couldn't believe it. You know, we were, we were over the moon. And then, uh, and then you said uh, a little while longer, they came back for the full song and that took about two weeks to prepare for them, a week to write it, a week to record it. Yeah, yeah, we managed to record it really quickly. We actually recorded a different version for our album because we felt like we, we were in a bit of a rush. So we, we actually recorded two versions. The album version is slightly different to the soundtrack album version, I think. So uh, I got to ask faster. you, the 30-something uh, uh, short versions out there that you originally had pitched, where are those now? Well, a few of them ended up as, uh, one of them ended up becoming a song on the album Death Express. And a couple of the short ones became short interludes and things. So some of them did get used. Yeah, but I haven't listened to them all in such a long time. I've got them all somewhere. But uh, So I got go the million through. dollar idea for you. What you need to do is you need to do the B-side album with uh, Better Call Saul. And the all rejects, the, yeah. the, the alternate... Uh, beginnings and endings i think people the, the fans of the show would clamor for this stuff i'm telling you yeah well they're all there somewhere yeah we, we recorded about yeah we did 29 in the end but because they're only 20 seconds it'd be a pretty short record you know yeah maybe we'll release them one day because i don't know if you're aware or not i'm pretty sure you are but how big this song impacted north america like it's played a lot on the radio it's so many people's ringtones it's ridiculous <laughs> Well, we get sent a lot of, we get tagged in, I think it's the band, a lot of people playing it, you know, playing the guitar theme, not just on guitars, playing it on, we've seen people play it on ukuleles, on pianos, all kinds of stuff, you know. It's not something that we could have ever imagined. Yeah, it's been it's been really good. It's the thing we're best known for, I'd say. And on, and on YouTube, you actually show people how to play it. Yeah, I did a little tutorial, yeah. Yeah, on how to play it. Um, it was one of the first things I filmed, actually, you know, for uh, Instagram or something. We put it on YouTube. Yeah, it's quite simple. If, if you've been playing guitar for a little while, it's pretty simple. So, Barry, can you picture yourself like 70, 80 years old with the walker going on stage and singing it for the 10,000th time? You good with that? If Yeah, hopefully I won't need the walker. <laughs> okay, 95. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, doing, car doing cartwheels, yeah, with his guitar. That might be better. I, I always marveled because, you know, people said to me, you know, someone who has a song where it's their hit single and, you know, they got to play it on every encore and everything. I wonder if they get sick of it. I'm like, you know what? When it generates money, no, you never get sick of that, I don't think. And also, I don't know. It, some people do, though, don't they? Some people, you know, really begrudge playing their biggest hit sometimes. I, I don't know for various reasons. I mean, I still like that theme, so that's all right. But, you know, some songs I wrote years ago, I'm a bit like, oh, I don't really fancy playing that now. Maybe my mind will change in years to come. I was going to ask you, like, what is your relationship with this song? If you walk into a record store or it comes playing on the radio, what goes through your mind? How do you feel about it? Um, I've not heard it that much when I've been out and about, to be honest. But it's, um, yeah, I mean, it's it's a good feeling. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, hard to, it's hard to describe, really. I never thought I'd see so many people playing something that I've written, you know. It's uh, from all over the world. It's... Uh, yeah, it's incredible. You know, it's, uh, it's a good feeling. Are you a fan of the show? Did you watch the show? Yeah, yeah. I haven't seen the final season, though, at all yet. 
Um, but yeah, it's an incredible show. Because when I spoke to Thomas, the music director, the first thing he said to me is, so you've seen Breaking Bad, right? And I just had to go, no. I had to be honest, because I haven't seen it. Okay. Because I thought if I say yes, I'm going to get caught out at some point trying to wing it, you know. So I just said no. And he said, that's fine. He told me a bit about the story. So my plan is I'm going to watch the final season of Soul and then I'm going to watch Breaking Bad and watch it in order. But, um, but it, the, you know, it's one thing getting a good, getting a theme for a successful TV show. But when it's a show as good as that, it makes it even better, you know, that you could do a theme for a show that's so well written and so well shot and brilliantly acted, you know. I, I got to tell you, I watched Better Call Saul first, then I went to go watch Breaking Bad. Well, that's and, what I'm going to do. And they're talking about a whole bunch of spinoffs right now. Like, there's a whole bunch of uh, uh, theories going on on who's going to get the spinoff show. And some of the actors have come out and kind of leaked a little bit and, like, suggested some things. So this is a franchise that I can't see it going away. But the mm. glue of it was Saul, you know, the, the, his yeah. magnetic personality. And, you know, every time that that theme song comes on, with the whole and the and the the picture always changes depending on what the scene is for that particular episode or that season, so it's never the same. But it always comes with that song, and it just has that close knit like that. That I, I can't picture that show without that song. Like you're always gonna oh, be in in television history because of that. Oh, that's nice, man. Yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a good. It's such a good show, though. You know, it's quite an addictive show to watch. So. I think when I start watching this final season, I'm probably going to end up watching it all in one go because it's really hard to stop once you start. It sort of sucks you in, doesn't it? The last season, I'm not going to ruin it for you, but it was incredible. Every episode was actually like it built up, built up. But man, it, yeah, you have to watch it. And just to let you know, if it's going a little snow, slow, they are building up into something. So don't worry. It's coming. But the but there seemed to be parts like that in the previous seasons as well, you know, where sometimes it would move slower in certain parts of the story, but sort of the momentum of the story storyline changed. I felt like in the other seasons as well. So yeah, I can't wait to see it. Well, you're going to definitely enjoy it. Now, as far as timing wise, I was going to ask you on little Barry, as far as uh, current works, uh, what's the plan for the next album? What's going on there? Future tours. I know you just came back from a tour recently. I think you did Ireland. I'm not mistaken. Yeah, that wasn't as little Barry that I've been playing guitar with Liam Gallagher. I've heard of him. Yeah. Yeah, he's a little famous. Yeah, so huh. I've I've been I've been playing with Liam this year. So I've been on tour with him over the summer. But um for little Barry, uh the next thing is we're making a new another record with Malcolm Catter on drums and producing, which is uh we're nearly nearly finished recording that. So that's the next thing. And I've also started an album as Little Barry with Tony Coote on drums which will be the next record that I'll go on to once this one is finished. Um, but yeah, I've been quite busy, I guess, with different projects. I've also made a, an album with an American musician called Sean Lee. Okay. Um, it's a mainly instrumental record. Sean's done a few bits of vocals, but that's a pretty interesting, uh, pretty interesting album as well. When are you expecting the next Little Berry album to be released? Are you expecting 2023? I think it's, yeah, it's going to be next year, partly because of, um, you know, like turnaround times for manufacturing vinyl and things like that. I mean, I'd love to get it out sooner because I think we'll have it finished sooner than that. But realistically, it'll be 2023. Well, you can't drop a bomb on me like Liam Gallagher and we not go there. So I got to ask you, how did you get involved with him? What's the story behind there? Um, well, basically, I've just been standing in for um, Bonehead, who's his old bandmate from Oasis, because Bonehead was playing guitar with Liam. But um He's not been well this year. Uh, he got diagnosed with tonsil cancer 
and he had to take time out to have treatment and recovery, but he's just got the all clear, which is amazing news. So he's just got to rest up for a little while and then he'll be back. So Liam contacted me about standing in for Bonehead while he's getting better. So yeah, uh, I got a text off Liam out of the blue. And uh, yeah, I spoke to him the next day. And uh, yeah, he's, it just sort of went from there really. So I've been doing a, the whole summer playing with Liam. You guys known each other pretty well for a while? No, we met a couple of times. I, I knew a couple of guys in the band, um, Drew on bass and Jay on guitar. I've known for quite a long time. So I knew a couple of people who were playing with him, but, um, but no, I just sort of learned the tunes and went to went down to rehearsals. And then I did a gig after maybe three weeks or something. There was a gig and they, they asked me if I wanted to play it or not. They said, if I needed more time, I could, and I just said, no, let's do it. You know, so I did the first show, which was like a, it was like a competition winners show in Blackburn um, to do with a collaboration that Liam had done with Adidas. And uh, yeah, it was a great gig. It was a lot of fun. And then some of the bigger shows happened after that. What's it like hanging out with Liam? What's, uh, what's he like uh, behind the scenes? He's a good guy. He's quite private. Yep. You know, so sometimes, you know, we don't see him all the time when we're traveling as the band and stuff. But, but yeah, he's been really cool. Everyone's lovely. The atmosphere has been great. So it's just made it kind of just easy atmosphere, a lot of fun, a lot of laughter. Band's really good. So yeah, it's been it's been really cool. Some pretty incredible shows to be part of, you know. I think the media likes to grab a hold sometimes a little bit more and chew it out more than they need to. But what everything I've ever read of him is just quiet guy, good to the people around him, and just chill. Yeah, it's quite different when you get to know someone away from the media or away from an environment that is, you know, like a a gig or a social gathering or something, you know, when you actually get a chance to sit down and talk, you know, we've not had a huge amount of chances to do that, but it's been really good when we have. Love it. Love it. And so it's been a lot of fun this summer. I would take it. It's been, it's been great fun. You know, I couldn't have seen this coming, you know, it's been like, you know, it was out of the blue, but yeah, it's been, it's been a lot of fun and yeah, I'm, I'm really glad that I did it. Could you see yourself working with them in the future, maybe recording albums or any music? Maybe. I mean, but, you know, if Bono's back and he's got his band, I'm not sure what Liam would want to do. But, you know, of course, I'd definitely be interested. But uh, he's got a he's got a lot of good musicians. But there's no uh, sitting there at the bar and uh, near the end of a session say, you know, maybe we'll call Noel. Maybe we can patch things up together. <laughs> there's no talk like that. Mm. We don't go there. I don't know. <laughs> no. Uh, uh, I've got no idea, man. No, 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 we're not I've going there. We're not idea. going there. I'm, 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 I'm laughing, but it's funny because even to this day, you know, across the pond, they still talk about Oasis. They still talk about the brothers. People still hold out hope. It's amazing the influence they had as music coming together. And I've seen Noel separately and Liam separately. It's nice that they're still producing music. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, yeah, I mean, Oasis meant a huge amount to millions of people over here too and still do. And so now looking into the future, we're going into 2023 and beyond. Uh, the future of Little Barry, Barry Cordigan, do you see for yourself uh, continuing? And just, we talked about a little bit about the albums, but you, you like the idea, I think, of, of Little Barry plus doing side projects, I take it. I, I can see, I, I, it seems like you, you love having the band, but also doing side projects. You seem to have a lot of creativity that you want to flow in all sorts of directions. 
Yeah, because I think sometimes, sometimes, you know, you feel like you can easily, you can more easily explore certain musical avenues that working with a different project, although, you know, doing stuff as Little Barry or Little Barry with Malcolm Catter still means a great deal to me and I want to do that. But one thing I found working as a, I guess, as a session musician is, you know, working with different people brings out different aspects of your playing that you wouldn't come up with when you were writing your own music. And I've definitely found that with Edwin Collins or with Matt Johnson with the, the, and also, you know, sometimes I've done, I've done a couple of things like tracks that have been on films recently. I played on a track on the Elvis movie and uh, um, on the new Ethan Hawke film, The Black Phone. I did a track with Anton Newcomb from the Brian Jonestown massacre for that, you know, so it's good working with different people, playing to different kinds of songs. It's really good. And it shows you different ways of working when you go back to your own stuff as well. Maybe stops you slipping into the same formulas sometimes, you know, it's good to change it up. I think it's healthy, you know, but I would like to spend more time with my band because I've not had so much time to do that, but it's all good. You know, we'll get there. I would have thought with the Better Call Saul theme song that Hollywood be, you know, clamoring down your door saying, uh, we need more soundtracks here. We need more themes. Well, there's been a few things like, you know, I got contacted by this, by the American producer, uh, Dave Cobb to play on this track for the Elvis film, you know, and I don't know. And he, he must've known about Better Call Saul, but also he, he discovered me through seeing the guitar clips on Instagram. So that made a difference, but I'd love to do more stuff to do with film. I did a soundtrack for a documentary over here as well. First time I'd done a score for like a one hour documentary, which was really fun. So I'd like to, yeah, if there was the opportunity to do things like that again, I'd love to do it. That's quite different to writing songs, you know. We'll keep in touch. Maybe when my future Netflix series comes up, uh, I'll need a theme song. Uh, we'll talk, we'll give collaborate. Yeah, yeah. You never know in life. Barry, it's been an ultra pleasure. I really appreciate you coming on today. The, the uh, all the fans enjoyed it as well. And being able to hear your stories as far as in music and sharing it, uh, finding out a little bit about the Better Call Saul theme song, obviously, and what the future holds for you. It's just, uh, we, we love music and it's great to hear the voices behind it. So honestly, thank you so much for taking the time today. Oh, you're welcome. And yeah, hopefully I'll get out to Canada again at some point. So it'd be nice well, if we could get out there and play again. Well, I can certainly tell you when you do come to Toronto, Ontario, Canada, you have a friend over here. So make sure you know all the right places to go. So we'll keep in contact. Oh, thanks very much, man. I appreciate uh, that. A pleasure. Cool. Have yourself a great day. Yeah, best wishes. Take care, man. Bye-bye. Cheers.